Her Bible reading is taken from the book of Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 26. And you can find this on page 862 of the Bible on your chairs. And I read, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named Apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Jesus the son of James, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of these diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on, the, on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spawn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and live for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Amen. Well, um, there's an outline on the back of the service sheet. Um, if you're new with us, uh, you can have a look there to see uh, where I'll be going this morning. Um, and the question I want to begin with is quite a big one, actually. Um, what are you looking for in life? What are you looking for in life? Um, I wonder if any of us here have been actually thinking about that question over the last year. Um, I'm aware some uh, have been taking exams or non-exams, but still waiting for results, which sounds as, I'm sure feels as grim as it sounds. Um, there's that kind of nerves of what's going to happen and, and what's going to happen after that. Will I get the grades? Will I get whatever course I'd like to do? Will I get a job beyond that? So perhaps for, for you in that generation, you have definitely been thinking, whether, whether teenagers or students, um, what am I going to do in life? What am I looking for? Actually, I don't think it's just our students who've been thinking about this or their parents. Uh, I think the, the pandemic, in lots of ways, because it's kind of paralyzed life for 18 months, in some ways we've all been asking the question, well, when I can do something again, what do I want to do? What do I want to do when I get my freedom back? Some may have found that kind of taking stock exercise quite sobering. Do I enjoy the job I'm doing? Can I do anything else? Is this where I still want to be in five years' time? 
Is this what I imagined my 30s or my 40s or my 50s or my 60s or my retirement to actually look like? What are you looking for in life? I ask that question because in our passage today, Jesus is going to teach his disciples about expectations, what we can expect as followers of Jesus, what you can look forward to in life if you want to stick with Jesus as Savior and King. Great, so if you're looking into Christian things, we always hope that there are some folk who are just curious about what we believe and whether it might be worth believing themselves and whether here or online. And today you're going to get a a candid description from Jesus of what it's like, what to expect. And let me say up front, what he says is something that I don't think would ever be written on a careers advisory form. I don't think it's probably ever been daydreamed about in a midlife crisis or longed for um, during lockdown as we think about using our retirement. Jesus says that those who follow him can look forward to material and social struggle. Just scan through from verse 20 of our passage, chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed you who are hungry. Blessed who weep now. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, on account of Jesus. I mean, surely no one has those kind of aspirations on their bucket list. One of the books we sometimes read um, with the kids at night is a book called You Choose. It's quite fun. You, each page, it goes through options of kind of, if you could be anything, if you could do anything, what would you do? What would you live? Where would you live? What would you wear? What transport would you use? What pets would you have? What job, etc. Um, it's right on, on cue with our kind of uh, self-determination, individualism kind of society. It's actually quite fun. But let me tell you, there is not a picture that represents any one of these categories. Poverty, hunger, weeping, social exclusion. You can even choose to have a crocodile as a pet. Personally, I I kind of think, please don't go down that route, Grace. Um, But you can't choose what Jesus says here. Because who would ever put that in a book? Who would ever opt into that? But Jesus here is starting a sermon. The sermon runs from chapter 6, verse 20, down to the end of chapter 6. It's the first kind of big sermon of Jesus we've been allowed to listen into in Luke um, uh, to his followers. And he is doing a kind of you choose moment. At the end of the sermon, if you just look on to verse 47, at the end of his sermon, he gives people a choice about whether they listen to his words and build their lives upon them or don't. He describes it as being like a wise man who builds on the rock, Jesus' words, or a foolish person who builds with sand and ignores what Jesus says. And so this is a kind of you choose moment. And the shocking thing is how he begins it with these surprising expectations. And so my aim this morning, by the end, is to understand why Jesus thinks these these challenging descriptions of life as a Christian can actually be the best way to live. That Jesus could be describing the good life with these strange terms. So please stick with me long enough to, to get to the point where I explain that. Um, But first, before we get to verse 20 um, and those expectations, uh, we do first need to run up from verse 12. Um, So our first point is actually about Jesus appointing new leadership for the people of God from verses 12 to 19. Um, New leadership for the people of God. This is what Jesus is setting up at the start of the passage. Um, So track with me, verse 12. Jesus has an all-night prayer session, a real marker that something important is about to happen um, as he commits these plans to his father. 
And he appoints 12 men to be his apostles, to be his official spokesmen. And as with everything in Luke's gospel, he's writing for us to be certain. So here we can be certain of who Jesus appointed as his official spokesman, these original witnesses. These are going to be the authoritative sources. And so we get every single name in them. I say this is setting up new leadership for God's people because 12 is a significant number. There were 12 tribes of Israel from 12 sons of Jacob. And Jesus is deliberately echoing that as he sets up a new leadership, a new 12 for this people of God that's going to be centered around him. If you were here last week, it's partly a reaction from what was happening last week. So last week, the established uh, kind of Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, their scribes, they've, they've rejected Jesus and they're plotting. If you look at verse 11, just before um, our passage, verse 11, they're, they're filled with fury and plotting to get rid of him. And while they're plotting, Jesus is praying and planning for a new leadership, these 12 apostles. And it's actually really an exciting moment. I know that may feel like, oh, what's the relevance to that today? It's actually a big moment because this is the first step of things getting bigger in Luke's gospel. See, up to this point, it's just been Jesus, just Jesus on his own. And, and from now on, it's going to be Jesus plus 12. And then when we read a bit further on in Luke, they're going to get sent out. And then it's going to be Jesus plus 12 plus 72 and they're going to be sent out. And then, when we get to Acts, the sequel of Luke, it's going to be Jesus plus 12 plus 72 plus the church going out with the good news of Jesus. It's actually a really exciting moment. A big turn, actually. So far, everyone's been saying, Jesus is the one. The birth announcements, he's the one. John the Baptist, he's the one. God the Father at the baptism, he's the one. Facing the devil one-on-one -on -one in the wilderness. Luke, uh, Jesus himself, Luke 4, with the manifesto, I'm the one. The Spirit's appointed me to, to proclaim good news. It's all been about Jesus the preacher proclaiming this good news. But now he's added a team, new leadership, the 12. And that will go on expanding until it includes us, those of us who are trusting Jesus by the end of these books. So Jesus' mission is expanding. It's exciting. And, and if you'd been there at the time, it must have been really exciting. So I'm sorry to bring up the football, but I, I've limited myself to one football illustration on the basis that I know we're a range of nationalities, and I know not everyone wants England to do well, and England are doing well. If you don't know, they're doing really well. Um, so just one illustration, just bear with me. We'll get through it, and then, and then I'll talk about other things. But, but when England beat Germany 2-0 a week ago, one of the pundits said, what a time to be alive as an England supporter. After so many years of hurt as they get knocked out of competition after competition, now suddenly it's all kicking off. Momentum is building. We're on the way to glory. That was, that was Germany, and then last night they beat Ukraine 4-0, and it was repeated. What a time to be alive, to be associated with this. Well, that's just football, and the bubble will burst at some point. But just imagine these 12 men. They've found something far, far bigger to be believing in, someone absolutely amazing to associate with, to support, to cheer on. King Jesus, no one less than God's long-promised king and saviour. 
The son of man, that phrase, is is God's long-promised judge of the whole world. Last week we saw he's the bridegroom come to God's people. So I know the atmosphere in a football stadium can get excited when the home side wins, but just look at what's happening in verse 17 to 19. Imagine how you feel if you manage to get front row tickets. Verse 17, he came down with the 12. He stood on a level place and with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. I mean, that's long distance traveling. This is, uh, it's worth coming to this away game. Verse 18, they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him For power came out from him and healed them all. Just imagine how the 12 must be feeling. I mean, we're with him. He's massively popular. He's massively powerful. He's the king. Let me just be honest that if me and my family had been living in that area at that time, we would definitely have traveled to see him. Lots of you will know my my wife has long-term chronic fatigue. We would definitely have been there. My daughter at the moment has something that the the doctors are struggling to diagnose. We would definitely be there, along with everyone else in the region. Who doesn't have a friend or family member who needs help? No wonder last week Jesus said, how can the guests fast when we're at a wedding? I'm the bridegroom. We're here. It's a great day. Like Friday was, great day. I bet the 12 can't wait to go and tell other people. In chapter 9, they're going to go. That's when Jesus is going to send them. I bet, I bet they can't wait to go and spread the news, this wonderful news of this powerful king who can fix everything. But just before they go, this new leadership team, Jesus has to set their expectations right. See, this major block of teaching sits between him, him giving them the job and sending them out in chapter 9. Before they go, they need to understand what the Christian life actually feels like and looks like. And it is a complete surprise, I think, a complete shock. In the flow of Luke, it's a complete shock. He is talking to his disciples about his disciples. Just look at verse 20 at the start of this big sermon. Verse 20, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... They're not the only ones listening. If you look on to chapter 7, verse 1, just after the sermon, we get a summary there. After he'd finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people. So other people are listening in, a lot like a normal Sunday morning at church. But but verse 20 wants us thinking about followers of Jesus. Verses 20 to 23 are about them. And then here is the bombshell. Here's the expectations he sets. Blessed are you who are... On the way to glory? Well, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Jesus. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, but for before your behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. Why is it so surprising? Well, Jesus has all the power. And didn't he come to bring good news of salvation and freedom and fixing the world's biggest problems? 
So surely if you're going to associate with him, it would be marching on the way to glory, not having a hard time in this life, struggle. It's surprising too, because who would choose this? I don't know if you ever thought about Jesus as a salesman, but he's nothing like the kind of usual religious sales pitch. You still hear that sometimes associated with Christianity. It's called the prosperity gospel, where people say, look, if you just come here, your life will be easy. Just just become a Christian, all your problems will melt away. You will be healthy. You will be wealthy. You will have loads of friends. You will have no one who thinks badly of you. You will climb and climb and climb in your standard of life. That is a lie, and it's a lie that Jesus refused to say. Though it's interesting, he doesn't think he's giving a grim deal here. Did you notice that in his language? He doesn't think he's offering a rubbish existence. He says, blessed are you who? Blessed, blessed, blessed. He's picking up a long tradition in the Bible, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs about blessed is the one who. If you want the good life, if you want a happy life, the best life you could choose, well, here it is. And then surprisingly, poor Hungry, weep, hated. Now, I've summarized this point from Jesus as the good life with me involves struggle now, satisfaction later. And there is satisfaction to come. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. You will have great reward in heaven. But right now, he is saying that being a Christian will involve material and social loss and struggle. Striking that. I wonder if we know that. I wonder if we believe him. Just before we go on any further, we will think about applying that in a moment. But I need to clear up a possible misunderstanding of these verses. um, Because they are sometimes read kind of superficially. As if um, Jesus is saying, everyone who is socially or economically deprived is automatically saved. Automatically in God's kingdom. And anyone who is wealthy or popular is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Um, As if if God's only interested in saving poor people, or or as if poverty is what automatically saves people. Now that can't be right. Not least because Luke's gospel so far has been saying uh, Jesus came to bring a message of forgiveness of sins to all kinds of people. So it can't be saying that. And actually, remember who he's talking to. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, people already following Jesus. And then look at verse 22. Why is it that these people are going to be hated? On account of the Son of Man, on account of Jesus. So we're talking here about Christians, people following Jesus, put their trust in Jesus. This is expectations for the Christian life. What then does he mean by saying that we who are Christians here will be poor, hungry, weeping, reviled? Sometimes people think, well, maybe those are just kind of spiritual terms. Uh, Maybe we'll we'll kind of feel poor about our our righteousness. We'll we'll feel um, uh, kind of hungry for, for forgiveness, spiritual categories. And in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, has some similar content to this, that is what's going on. Matthew makes it really clear when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. When he says, blessed are you who hunger for righteousness. 
So that is about spiritual need. But Luke has already said that point. Jesus said that back in chapter 4 when he said, I've come to preach good news to the needy, to those who are blind spiritually, captive spiritually, poor um, in in their kind of spiritual bank account. He's already said that. Chapter 5 has already said, I've come to call sinners to repentance, people who know they need forgiveness. He's already said that. Now he's saying, look, if you're going to be in my if you're going to be my disciples, this is the expectation. It's really sobering. It fits to the, the, the way that verses 24 and 26 show the other side. We've got material difficulties in verses 20 to 22, material excess in verses 24 to 26. And let's be honest, it is a bit of a shock. It was all looking so hopeful as a disciple. Jesus is here, he's going to heal diseases, fix the world's problem, the bridegroom is here, and we all get to feast. No, actually, following him is going to look like poor, hungry, reviled, hated. Whew, that's surprising. I think we might have a lot of questions as we try and apply this to our lives. I think we've got time for three, let me just give them to you. Three questions. Number one, why will following Jesus involve this kind of struggle? Number two, is it still true today in Morningside, a church like this? And number three, is it really worth it? And those aren't on the outline, but I'll I'll tell you when we're on each one. So why why does it involve struggle, following Jesus? Is it still true today for us here? And is it really worth it? So, firstly, why is it that following Jesus will involve struggle now? satisfaction later in other words what happened to the feast with the bridegroom well just look back with me to chapter 5 verse 34 534 last week was was where Jesus was being quizzed about why his disciples weren't fasting and Jesus says something really interesting verse 34 can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them but then listen to verse 35 the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. That is to say, Jesus has already given a hint that this kind of party atmosphere around him, this feasting because he's here, is not going to last because he's going away. He's going to be taken away. He's going to the cross. In chapter 9, he'll start saying, I'm going to the cross, and anyone who comes after me will follow that route, follow my path. See, the king is going to be rejected. And now in our verses, um, chapter 6, verse 22, he says it's going to, that, that same experience is going to be true of his followers. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of me. Jesus is going to be rejected. His followers will experience some of that themselves, the same exclusion, ostracism. It's pretty hard to climb the ladder of material wealth, comfort, and ease if people are against you. And Jesus is saying, if you're public about me, people will be against you. Quite sobering that, isn't it? Following him won't be all feasting now. It will be feasting then. Satisfaction to come, struggle now. We're going to see much more of this as we go into our motto series next term. Jesus will keep saying that the heavenly banquet is still to come 
And that's where life's really at. On the way, there's struggles. That's the first question. And why uh, is it like this? Because uh, we're following Jesus who's going to the cross. Second question, and maybe this is the most pressing one for us in this particular church family, is it still true? Like, is it true today, here, in beautiful Morningside, with our nice clothes and food and cars and homes? I mean, let's be honest, most of us can't be described, really, not on a global scale, as, as poor, hungry, weeping. We might even think, does hatred really describe our relationship with folks who aren't Christian? I mean, yeah, maybe they're not interested, maybe they think we're a bit weird, but, but usually it's indifference. It's not really reviling and exclusion that we face, is it? Well, the first thing to say is that for the original listeners, the 12 apostles and the people around them, this absolutely did describe their experience. They'd left businesses and things to follow Jesus, giving it all up so they could spread this message. And as they went on, as we followed them through in Luke and Acts, they do get rejected, hated, lots of opposition. So it was true of them originally. If you look through church history, actually across the centuries, it's true of most eras of the church. There's real opposition and persecution. If you look around the globe today, contemporary church around the globe, it's true of many, many countries. It is not easy to be an open Christian in the Middle East. It's not easy to be an open Christian in East Asia, to have your, your, your kind of prime allegiance to Jesus, not the party. Lots of our mission partners, our global partners, are working in contexts where it's not easy for them or for those they, they serve to be a Christian. And it doesn't just lead to reputational cost, it leads to material cost. If you're being ostracized by your family or your society or your, your government, being viewed with suspicion, that does hit job security, living standards, welfare. And actually, it's not only true in other countries and other times. So there are individual Christians and churches in Scotland that are finding out that being public and outspoken about Jesus and what he teaches sometimes brings strong pushback. There are churches that have been denied the ability to rent premises, denied the ability to build premises, because they're sticking with what Jesus teaches in the Bible, literally being excluded on account of the Son of Man. Those of us who have been around this church family in our recent history will know some of that. Why is it a lot of money is being devoted to buying a building and then refurbishing a building to be fit for ministry? Well, because sticking with what Jesus teaches became really unpopular at a national church level. That means we are poorer than we'd otherwise be. And as we look ahead, it may be the pressure grows. And if the pressure grows, the costs will grow. It's also true on an individual level. Over the last couple of years, lots of us have been uh, trying to take a step forward in sharing the good news of Jesus. A number of us have asked friends or colleagues or family to, to, to see if they'd be interested in looking at Jesus, at reading the Bible together. And, and wonderfully, some of those, some of those um, relationships have been brilliant. People have really enjoyed seeing what Jesus actually said. Uh, some folks have started following Jesus, become Christians. It's not true of every example, though. I know someone um, who, who, after one session, never wanted to do it again. See, following Jesus 
around, sticking closely to him, publicly allying ourselves to him, can actually make more life, life more of a struggle. As we go on in Luke, and even as we go on in this sermon that he's given to his, his followers, we're, we're going to see lots of other ways where Jesus calls us to radical living. So things like generosity, which we'll see next week, um, or grace to enemies, which we'll see over the coming weeks. Actually, that is costly, really costly. Might well end up weeping, because we don't take our own back. We trust our Father and we show love. Might well end up poorer than we'd otherwise be, as we're generous with resources. See, taking Jesus seriously means we will be more stretched financially than we'd otherwise be. We, we will have lower standards of living than we otherwise would. We may be weeping for injustice more than we otherwise would be. I, I remember an experienced minister saying to me, and it, it stuck with me, I mean, it stuck with me now for decades. He said that um, one of the hardest things for his life as he went on as a Christian is that the gap between him and his peers who weren't Christians the gap was getting wider and wider in terms of standing a standard of living, uh, in terms of reputation and kind of power in society. They were going up the rungs, up the property ladder, up the salary ladder, up the social ladder, up the political ladder, the standard of living, standard of holidays ladder. And he just carried on plowing on, giving his energy and his time and his money to, to the work of the gospel and losing his reputation in lots of ways in the process. He said to me, I think my standard of living peaked in my kind of mid-twenties. I've been downwardly mobile since then for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus says that's an aspect of normal discipleship. We're going to see that as we go through in Luke. Um, but actually, the point in this passage is not to command us to do all that. It's not a passage that's supposed to beat us up. I hope that's not the effect by, by, by the time I sit down. I hope that's not the effect because Jesus isn't trying to beat people up and kind of tell us what to do. He's trying to set our expectations and change our hearts to see this as the good life. I know that's surprising. How could it be, this life of relative poverty, hunger, weeping, exclusion? How could this be the blessed life? If you're flicking through the, the You Choose book of life, how could you choose this? Well... Jesus says it's worth it. What is coming in the future is worth it. Yours is the kingdom of God. You shall be satisfied. You shall laugh. Great is your reward in heaven. Without trusting that eternity is coming, the sums will never work in the Christian life. Jesus says, and we'll see this more in Luke, there's a great turnaround coming. There is a day coming when Jesus will return and those who've been living humbly for Jesus, sacrificially, costly ways for Jesus, looking stupid in lots of eyes in the world, will be lifted up to glory, to satisfaction, to a heavenly banquet. And the flip side is true. Those who've looked like they've had everything in this world, but didn't have Jesus, will be brought low and humbled in judgment. Which brings us to our final point, much more briefly. Our final point, and, and one of the reasons why it's blessed to follow Jesus down this path is that the alternative is so dangerous. It's a desperately dangerous place to be the other side. Here's point three. You're now satisfied 
Christ rejecting comfort will not last. This is what Jesus is saying. You're now satisfied. Christ rejecting comfort will not last. Now, first off, that's a warning to the Pharisees, those who are so angry at him. We find out later in Luke, they're lovers of money. It's one of the reasons they think Jesus is ridiculous, the kind of things he's suggesting about how to live. But it's not limited to them. I think this applies, this warning applies to anyone who's pursuing the good life, looking for for the wealth and benefits that this life can offer, and denying the need to come to Jesus. We find it hard to accept this, I think. And, And Luke is going to give us example after example after example of it. As the rich fool, chapter 12, so busy with his business, he's building barns, he he wants to store more grain that he forgets he's going to meet God. Doesn't prepare at all. God says, you fool. We'll see it with the rich man and Lazarus. He was busy feasting every day in luxury and not even thinking about other people around him. He'd not responded to God's words. Ended up in agony. The rich young ruler later, he had so many possessions When Jesus told him to give them up, he was unwilling and walked away sad from Jesus. It's a sobering warning. Verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. I've been really challenged by this, to be honest. I mean, I'd I'd love a happy, easy life (laughs) with no one being grumpy with me. I'd love that. I've actually been most challenged in terms of my ambitions for for people I love, ambitions for the children. Because in lots of ways, my driving ambition is that they're just safe and happy and comfortable. But actually, the warning here is no one thing really matters, which is that they're with Jesus, following him, even if that brings cost. I think we're so tempted to redesign Jesus to fit with the spirit of our age. Some of those ways are are really obvious. Um, I think this way is not so obvious. I think lots of us deep down hope that essentially Jesus can be added like icing on the cake of our lives. You know, you you got your cake, which is kind of really comfortable Western individualistic materialism. That's the cake. And then Jesus can just kind of be added on top, like free forgiveness when I get to heaven in the end. But that's not what Jesus said he's about. He said that he came to call us to repentance, to turn around to a different kind of living, a radical way of living. And he says here, expect it to be costly. Worth it, but costly. It's not all feasting in this life. Our time is up. I just want to say one more thing before we close because I'm aware that saying all that might make it sound like this is actually quite a grim passage. Do you know what I mean? You might be sitting there thinking, well, I just feel guilty and anxious and kind of worried about that. I'm not looking forward to life if that's what it's going to be as a Christian. might sound pretty grim and depressing. A, A kind of grit your teeth and bear it kind of sermon. But actually, the tone of what Jesus is saying It's not that at all. He's not saying we've just got to kind of scrunch up our faces and our fists and and just kind of endure the slog until he comes back. No, look at the repeated refrain. 
Blessed are you who, blessed are you who, blessed are you, blessed are you. He's offering the good life, the the better position. And then look at the explicit uh, application in verse 23. When this this comes, when this reviling and excluding for the name of Jesus comes, just look at his application, verse 23. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. For those of us, and there are some of us sitting in this room, who have faced real cost. Who stuck your neck out for Jesus and people weren't happy. Jesus says, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And here's the amazing thing. As you read on in Luke and Acts, This is what Jesus' followers do when facing this kind of stuff. It's really amazing, actually. You get into Acts, and um, the church is really needy. There's some some believers need need provision. And people in the church are giving. They're selling fields to to pool their resources to, to provide. And they do so joyfully. The apostles get dragged before the authorities for speaking in the name of Jesus um, and, and they're locked up, they're beaten, locked up, they're commanded never to speak his name again. And do you know what they, they do? They, they sing hymns. They rejoice that they've been counted worthy of suffering for his name. It's an extraordinary thing. It's not a natural thing. It's the work of God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is saying, this is the good life. And as we experience struggle for Jesus, by his spirit, he will lift our hearts to remember these words, to trust him, and to rejoice in them. See, the, the, the cry of a Christian heart, and, and as I'm going into a kind of summer break, I'm away next week, and then um, slightly slower summer in various ways, I, I, I'm praying that this would be a summer where my ambitions change off the back of Luke. For me, for the children, for others that I love, my friends and, and, and neighbors, that my ambitions would change that I'd realize the most important thing is to be with Jesus Christ where he is, even if it's costly. To be downwardly mobile, if that's where he's going, knowing that he'll take us home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he tells it how it is. We pray for anyone who knows these words, not just from Luke 6, but from experience, who has really suffered for the name of Jesus, that you would, this morning, help their hearts to rejoice and have real assurance that they are where you are and doing what you, what you told them to expect. Pray for any listening in and, and kind of looking into the Christian life. We thank you for, for being upfront about the costliness of it. And we pray by your spirit you'd be drawing them to see that there's no better place to be. And Father, for all of us, as we continue to to read through Luke and grapple with what it means to, to turn and follow this king, we pray you would be filling our hearts with the joy and confidence that there is a heavenly feast to come. And so free us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.